morning, Four Corners. Praise God for time to gather before the Lord together as God's people to sing His praises once again, and particularly as we are in Exodus chapter 15. So if you would, go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles. Exodus 15, verses 4 to 21. Next week we will depart on Christmas Day. Next Sunday we will be having service that morning and we will depart from Exodus and look at the uh, story of the wise men in Matthew 2. So uh, we have, um, we've stuck with Exodus up to this point and it has been really providential how uh, so many of the themes of our salvation in Jesus Christ are just here right in our face as we're looking at uh, this portion of Exodus But next week we will explicitly look at the Christmas narratives and uh, in particular at Matthew chapter 2. So I just invite you to come back next week. I know uh, it will be Christmas Eve we'll have a service, Christmas Day we'll have a service. But uh, I will say to you that there really is nothing uh, better that we could do with our time as we spend Christmas than to praise God with his people. To be together in corporate worship, singing his praises and looking at his word. So I hope you'll be able to make it, if you can. So today we return to the song of the sea, this song of praise that immediately follows the miraculous events of the Red Sea, the parting of the sea, the making of a path through the sea for God's people to go through on dry ground, and the bringing down of the sea onto the Egyptians. It's just a multifaceted miracle, multiple angles we have there as we look at what God did at the Red Sea. It's just endless uh, in showing God's splendor. The narrative of chapter 14 gives us God's glory at the sea. And so we had three sermons on chapter 14 of Exodus as we looked at the Red Sea event. And this poetry that we have here in chapter 15 gives us God's praises at the sea. So we see God's glory at the sea, historically told for us, and then we see the response to that, God's praises at the sea in chapter 15. Last week, we looked at the opening words of this song, this song of Moses, verses 1 to 3, and we were presented with this question, what is praise? Or asked this way, what does it mean to sing God's praises? Now, oftentimes we have to go back and readdress the basics. We, we get these things in our minds and we, we form uh, what we understand to be the truth about that. And then we just sort of move on. But I hope last week, at the very least, that it gave you a fresh opportunity to ask what you're even doing when you sing God's praises. What are you doing when you sing God's praises uh, in the shower, in the car, in the yard? What are you doing when you sing God's praises with your family at home, uh, with your small group? What are we doing, most especially when we sing God's praises, gathered together as His church? What is praise? And in those opening verses we found four characteristics of singing God's praises. So I want to just quickly go through those. We, this is what we covered last week. So I'm not going to re-preach that. But I, I do want to summarize for you what we looked at last week as we begin to move in today in more detail into this song. So first, 
singing God's praises is a proper reaction, as we saw last week. God lifts himself up in his saving acts, and we react to that lifting up of God by himself. We react to that by lifting up our own voices as we sing God's praises. So what I said last week is we don't have to lift God up. He's already up. He's already there. He's already at the highest place. He doesn't need us to be glorified. But we, in reaction to his lifting of himself, lift him up with our voices, with our tongues, with our lips, with our voices. Second, it is a prayer response. And as we talked about last week, our songs of praise are actually prayers. They are prayers. They are to the Lord. As we started out in chapter 15, verse 1, these songs were to Yahweh. And when we sing God's praises, whether it is in the the second person, you, O God, or in the third person, he, our God, either way, we are praying to God. We are singing to the Lord. And so, What I said last week is we need to take an eraser as we're thinking about a whiteboard. And you probably, many of us probably have a dark black line, a thick black line between the category of praying and singing. And so what I said last week is just allow this passage to be like an eraser and to erase that thick black line between these two things and begin to let your singing be praying and your praying be singing. As Paul says to the Ephesians, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God our Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. And of course, addressing our songs to one another as we speak about God in prayer to God. So it is a proper reaction. It is a prayer response. And third, it is a personal relationship. So our singing is praying. And here, more specifically, our singing is relating. It is an expression of the intimate relationship that we have with God. We never sing to God or about God without this thought in our mind, this, these feelings in our heart that God is my strength, God is my song, and God is my salvation. He's not just the salvation. He's not just our salvation. He's mine. God is my song, my strength. He is my salvation. Our praise to God, our singing to God is an act of relating to God. It is an expression of relationship. We also talked last week about how the Lord must move from being just my father's God, which is good, to being my God. And so I I plead with all of you, as I did last week, with all of you who are children to think in those terms, is God your God? Is the Lord yours? Is Jesus yours? Or is he just mom and dad's? When will Christ be yours? Your treasure. Your great hope. What a tragedy it is that so many children grow up in Christian homes and then they go off. And they have no regard for church, no regard for the Bible. They love the world. 
Why? Because Christ never became their treasure. He was just mom's or just dad's. Or maybe the children wondered whether he was really mom or dad's treasure at all. He must move from being my father's God to my God. And then fourthly, it is a profound recognition. Our praises are a recognition of God's name, who he is. And in that, we see that God is fierce against his enemies. And so we finished last week with verse 3, which says this, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And we talked about how God is fierce. But as we think about God's fierceness, and maybe that's not a category that you've had in your mind about the Lord is that he is fierce. You just haven't thought about God in that way. Maybe modern sentimentality has, has informed your view of God more than the Bible. Or maybe it has eclipsed the biblical view. The modern view has become more and more the secular view, the soft view of God that does not have any regard for his judgment, any regard for his justice, any regard for his holiness. Maybe that has become your view of God. And so I hope you were reminded last week that God is fierce. But as we think about that, as we think about God's fierceness towards his enemies, as we think about his power and judgment against his enemies, I want to remind us of two things. Two things. First, all of us in this room were once God's enemies. And do you think about that? We are reading what God does to his enemies in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. And all of us in this room were or are still, if you're not a Christian, God's enemies. And for those of us who are, what did God do to us, his enemies? The answer is he graciously saved us. He graciously moved us from being his enemies to being his friends. Yes, God judges his enemies, but this morning we celebrate that through Jesus Christ, he also saves some of his enemies and doesn't just save us and make us friends. He adopts us to become his children. All of us in this room were at one point enemies of God. And so we could say it this way, that Christmas is about enemy rescue. As we think about what God did when he sent Christ into the world, as we look upon that, that baby Jesus with the shepherds, or that toddler or near toddler Jesus with the wise men, as we look upon this Christ, this enfleshed deity, we recognize that it is all about rescuing God's enemies. This is the glory of God. This is the God, if you're not a Christian, that you have not known and that you've been missing. The God who saves enemies. Those who put his son on the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10, it says, while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Listen, it is not about becoming more and more friendly with God so that he will love you. It is not about becoming, inching your way or stepping your way toward being more and more friendly with God, doing more to please God so that you'll reach a threshold and then God will reach out, take hold of your hand and say, okay, now I love you. No, God saves his enemies. It is about right now, once and for all, renouncing all that you have loved and served and turning to Jesus Christ in repentance. It is about trusting, not in the idols of this world, but trusting in what God did for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saves his enemies. Ephesians 2, verses 3 to 6. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's what you were before God saved you. That's what we were. We were children of wrath. That means we were the sons of judgment. We were sitting under God's judgment. But then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in that state, In that state of being sinners, in that state of being enemies, in that state of being spiritually dead to God, what does it say? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So yes, God is fierce towards his enemies. But consider that it is his enemies that he saves. A second consideration as we think about God's fierceness to his enemies is that as God's people, as we think about our own enemies as God's people, we need to remember Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, where Paul says this. It's a familiar passage, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against our neighbors, the people in our culture, our elected officials. No, it doesn't say that. It says this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we think about our enemies, we we must realize what is going on behind the scenes, what is going on spiritually. Our enemies ultimately are spiritual. Our enemies, we must fight in the spirit, and we must fight the schemes of the devil. That is our great enemy. And let me just say this to all of us. Recognizing our spiritual enemies helps us to love and pray for our earthly enemies. It'd be easy to be a little bit triumphalistic as we go through uh, chapters 14 and 15. We see God smashing the Egyptians. We just want to celebrate and dance. As we'll see at the end of this passage, that's what they did. They danced and they had the tambourines out and all of that and singing and praising. And, and of course, we understand why and it is good and it is right. And yet, we recognize as we're here this morning 
that Christ has called us not to crush our enemies in this world, but to love them and to pray for them and to turn one cheek to the other. That is the way of Christ as we fight our real enemy, Satan. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 15. Our text for today is verses 4 to 21, but we're going to go ahead and start at verse 1 so that we can get this whole song in view. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still As a stone. Notice the Egyptians sank to the bottom of the sea like a stone, and here the peoples are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You can go ahead and be seated.
You know, as a dad, when you become a, a parent, it just changes the way you think about protection and safety and threats and everything. It just changes, changes everything. There's certain movies that I, I, I have no taste for watching after having children. It's just, I, can't, I just can't watch those sorts of movies. And as we think about that as parents, just imagine what it would have felt like to be the Israelites having been rescued by the Lord just for the sake of your kids. Uh, they were looking at their children being slaughtered or taken as slaves, and God rescued all of them. What an amazing scene. They had much to sing about, much to praise God about. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would give us wisdom and insight as we come to his word, and that he would prick all of our hearts. He would cut us to the heart. He would make us more like his son. He would uh, give us greater comfort and joy in our identity in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time to gather as your people. We thank you for your word, which is holy and true and perfect, sweeter than honey, more precious than much fine gold. It puts before us our great treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Yeshua. He is our salvation. We praise you for this Christ. And as we think about this great moment of salvation in the Old Testament, Lord, help it not to be lost on us that this is all a picture of what you did through Christ at the cross. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us for your eternal possession. You've saved us to be eternally happy in Jesus. You have given us the hope of perfection that we would reign with Christ free of sin in perfect love of God and neighbor. Lord, we look forward to all that Christ will bring when he returns. And we thank you for this time we have together to be in your word, to celebrate your glory. God, we pray that you would minister to each of our hearts this day by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we get into the content of this song... And to the response of Miriam and the rest of the women, we see three things. And so these will be our, these will be our three points for today. If, you, if you're a note taker, you want to write these down. This is what we'll look at. The majestic victory, verses 4 to 12. The protective terror, verses 13 to 18. And then finally, the comprehensive praise, verses 19 to 21. So let's go ahead and jump in to the majestic victory, verses 4 to 12. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is victorious. This is one of the most obvious themes of this song. You, you just read through it very quickly. And sometimes going through passages very quickly help you to get the main idea. Because you don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Trees are great. We, lo- we love all the trees. But you don't want to lose the forest. And sometimes going through a text rather quickly w- will help us to get the forest in view. And here we see that one of the great themes of this forest, or the forest itself in many ways, is this theme of God's victory. The Lord has shown his power over Pharaoh and his military might and over the gods of Egypt. This is a majestic victory for the God of the Hebrews, for the Lord. God has shown himself to be the true king. The ultimate king, lifted up and enthroned in holiness and glory. 
And the text right here in verses 4 to 12 gives us two aspects of this victory over Egypt. As we just trace, we walk through it verse by verse. The Lord drowned their forces and the Lord silenced their boasting. That's what we find in verses 4 to 12. The Lord drowned their forces and the Lord silenced their boasting in his victory. So let's look at each of these. First, the Lord drowned their forces. Look at verses 4 to 7. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. It's an incredible This set of words just piled together, magnifying the Lord in his greatness. The focus here is on God's powerful supremacy. God is lifted, lifted, lifted. He's placed over, placed over, placed over. And he is lifted and placed over in his might, his great power. And the best way to track this is with the verbs. So to ask, what did God do? What did God do? And this is poetically captured from various angles. This is one of the the great things about poetry is it it allows uh, the nuances to be captured, all of the different angles of something, rather than a narrative which tells you this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Poetry allows some of the the, the nooks and crannies and some of the the contours and the the points of it all to, to be brought out as you look at it from various angles. And so as we just go through, just listen to these various verbs. He cast them into the sea. Verse 4, he sunk their chosen officers in the Red Sea. Once again, verse 4. Now let me just pause for a moment there. This is really important for us to see because these are the best officers of the best part of the military of Egypt. Now understand this. This is the very best that the military of the world has to offer at this point. We're meant to see beyond this. We're meant to see beyond Egypt. We're meant to see beyond the chariots, beyond the elite officers. We're meant to see that this is the very best, and you could translate this into any period. Just go through the centuries, all the way up till today. The greatest that the militaries of this world have to offer. Sunk. By the Lord. Sunk. Verse 5, he covered them with floods or the deep. Verse 5, he brought them down into the depths like a stone. Verse 6, he shattered them with his powerful right hand. Verse 7, he overthrew them in the greatness of his majesty. Verse 7, in his fury, he consumed them like stubble. Now, this word stubble is really interesting because it brings us back to chapter 5. Do you remember when Moses first came on the scene and he goes to Pharaoh to tell him God's message? 
And the Pharaoh cracks down on the taskmasters. It cracks down on the foremen of the people. And what does Pharaoh say? He says, you are no longer going to be given any straw to make your bricks, but you've got to go and find your own straw and make bricks the same number of bricks you were before. And what does it say there? It says that the Israelites were sent out into all the land to gather stubble for straw. Meaning they're picking up these tiny little bits of of straw root that are left over in the ground. Digging it up. Getting these tiny little bits of stubble. Here, I can't help but to think the Israelites smile as they sing these words. As they think about the Lord consuming the Egyptians like stubble. Stubble sprinkled on a blazing fire. From whatever angle you look at it, this is total victory. Total victory for the Lord and total defeat for Pharaoh and his forces. And it reminds us of Christ's victory at the cross. And I love all of the poetic language because I think the same is true as we think about Christ's victory at the cross. There are so many angles to what Christ did at the cross. You could celebrate it for eternity and that will be done. We will celebrate eternally. And listen to this, kids especially, we will never get bored. Never, ever, unthinkable. We will celebrate eternally all the facets of Christ's victory through his work on the cross, which will make this song look as nothing in the grand scheme of redemptive history. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil. And of course, the cross understood with the resurrection. We get a little bit of this in Colossians 2, verses 14 to 15 where we're told these wonderful words. Have you, have you read these words? Have you meditated on these words and the assurance that they give us as Christians? As we think about what, what Christ actually did at the cross. Colossians 2, 14 to 15. At the cross, God was, here it is, canceling the record of debt. I had a very long record of debt. And you too. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this what? This record of debt that stands against us as a great enemy with all of its demands and all of our failures to meet those demands. This he set aside. He balled it up. He crumpled it up and threw it away. How? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You want to know what we'll be singing in heaven? That. That sort of thing. Forever. I want to tell you this too. If you're not a Christian this morning, do not be deceived. There is a very long, immeasurably long, Held by, on that day, many angels, a record of debt that stands against you 
a record of sin, a record of idolatry, a record of lust and greed, of hatred of neighbor, of selfishness, of pride, of glorying in this world, of disregard for God, of ingratitude for his blessings, of dishonoring of his name, of disobeying our parents, and dishonoring them. A long, long, long record of debt. And that stands against you. Do not be deceived. If you die in your sins, you die with that record of debt against you. Before a holy God, who as a just judge must and should in this world, he will render payment. He will cause us to render payment, rather, as he renders judgment for those many Many sins. But we're Christians here this morning, gathered, worshiping the Lord. And so what do we say? Praise God that he he set it all aside because he nailed it to the cross. It's not there anymore. There's no record of debt against me. There's no more charge against me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 8 as he delights in the glorious fact that our sins have been removed. Why? Because of Christ's great victory on the tree. So the Lord drowned their forces in great Victory. Second, the Lord silenced their boasting. Look at verses 8 to 12. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And in verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. You, you, it's almost a picture of them drooling. Like, like someone is drooling after they haven't eaten in a few days. and a, a nice, juicy piece of steak. They're, they're drooling over what they're going to do to the Israelites. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. No, 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 says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. The Lord blew. He blew with his wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Swallowed all their boasting. Swallowed all their arrogant plans. Verse 8 recounts the parting of the sea, and this is immediately followed by the boasting of verse 9. As the Egyptians pursue the Israelites into the sea, they make a series of arrogant claims against God's people. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Pride. Hatred. Greed, immense cruelty. These are the things swimming around in the hearts of the Egyptian forces as they charge into the sea 
after Israel. If you've wondered, you know, how in the world? What? I mean, if I were an Egyptian soldier, I wouldn't do that. I would look to my left and I'd look to my right and I would say, no way am I going in there. They are entirely clouded in their hearts by their sinful lust. Guided by pride, hatred, greed, and cruelty. They are like salivating dogs chasing after the Israelites. So what does God do? By bringing the sea down upon them, he silences all of their boasting. He blew with his wind and covered them, verse 10. He stretched out his arm and swallowed them, verse 12. Their boasts, their pride, all of their plans. I I can imagine some of those charioteers just going through the sea after those Israelites thinking about what they're going to do with these new slaves when they get back to Egypt. What they're going to do with the silver and gold that uh, people gave them. Just planning out their future. Their five-year plan, their 10-year plan, their 20-year plan at the expense here of God's people. Salivating over all of these things. And what does God do? He swallows them in a moment. Gone. All their plans, all their boasting, gone. This reminds us that one day all the boasting of the world will be brought to nothing. Let me say that again. One day, all the boasts, all the arrogance, all the pride, all the conceit, all the self-exaltation of the world and its kingdoms and its people will be brought to nothing. All of it will be swallowed up by this holy God. Luke chapter 1, verse 51 to 53 gives us this very message. And maybe as you have read this Magnificat of Mary, this song that she, that she sings, this, this praise of God that comes out of her heart and out of her lips as the angel comes to tell her that she's going to have a son. Maybe you've read these words before and you've you really just thought, it's kind of weird, like, I don't really understand. Jesus is being born and this is what she says. But listen to what she says Listen to how she interprets and understands what God is doing and will do through the birth of her son, the Christ. She says about the Lord, about God, he has shown strength with his arm. Notice how much, how close this parallels to chapter 15 of Exodus. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Maybe you just haven't paid much attention to that as you've looked at the Christmas story. But it reminds us that all human glory, all the glory of Caesar... Swallowed up by the Lord. Christmas is a pointer to the emptiness of human glory. And as I've said before, you know, we're all guided by the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see it in Eve, and you see it in your heart. I see it in my heart. And here's the thing. 
let this check the pride of life. The pride of life is in every single one of us. We want to grow and expand. We want to rise, whatever that means for us. We want to be well thought of. We want to be well talked about. We want to rise up in this life. And just consider this, in all of these pursuits, in all of these desires, in all of this planning and doing and striving, that all of this in the end is swallowed up. All of it in the end amounts to nothing. The Lord swallows up all the pride of life for the Egyptians and for all of us. Why are you pursuing that which is empty? You're going to spend your whole life trying to get something only to open up the lid and see that it's empty, that it has nothing in it but air. When all the while, year after year and decade after decade, you could have been pursuing Christ. You could have been pursuing that which has no bottom to it and no top. That which is filled with thickness and richness and density and substance. When all along you've been pursuing air with nothing in it. This is the great folly and the great sadness of so many and so many Christians as well. But God not only silences the boasting of the enemy, he also silences the praises of their gods. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Majestic, awesome, glorious, wonderful. These are the highest expressions of praise. This is the very best that the human language has to offer. What more could they have said in Exodus 15 than this? This is it. This is superlative language. The very height of human expression just piled up. Almost to the point to where you're just trying to figure out how they even relate to each other. They're just, through, they're just all crammed together in glorious praise. Reserved for this incomparable God, enthroned in holiness, set apart from all as the eternal, infinite creator of all majestic in holiness is he. This is the God we live for. This is the God we trust, the God we serve, the God before whose face we live in life and in the moment of our death. And that brings us secondly to the protective terror, verses 13 to 18. So look with me there. The protective terror. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you, whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. 
They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Here the focus shifts towards the future. There has been much debate among commentators over what tense should be used to translate the verbs in this section. But regardless of the tense of the verbs, the context makes clear what is in view. It is the future movement of God's people into Canaan. The previous verses were concerned with what God just did with what God just did to the Egyptians. So we've been going through uh, verses 4 to 12. God's praises for what he just did to the Egyptians. Now the focus shifts to the future. To what God will do as his people move into Canaan. Let me say this to us. Faith sings of future events as though they are in the past and present. I think the grammar here is meant to give us that. Even as uh, scholars debate, are, are, these, you know, are these to be t- uh, translated as, as present, past, or future? There's different views. And among the translations, you can see different views. And I think the reason is because it, it's talking about something that hasn't happened yet as though it has happened. So it's meant to be a little confusing in that way. It's a little disorienting. They've just praised God for what he did. And now they're talking about something that hasn't happened yet. But it's being talked about as though it's already a done deal. Let me say it again. Faith sings of future events as though they are in the past and present. Do you sing of heaven as though it is already yours? Do you sing of Christ's return as though it has happened today? That is faith exercising itself in our praises. Several peoples are mentioned here, which would roughly approximate the path that the Israelites Israelites would take into Canaan. These are the various peoples that they would encounter. And what has God done? One word, terror. He has put terror and dread into the hearts of these peoples, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites themselves. As verse 16 says, they are still as a stone as God's people pass through. In other words, we could say it this way, God has scared them to death of himself. God has put immense fear, or will put, once again, this is, this has, the, the Red Sea's just happened. So they haven't heard yet, but news is going to get there, and it's going to put a terror and a dread into their hearts. The Lord has displayed magnificent glory, imparting the sea and drowning the Egyptians, and now we see the terror that he will place in the hearts of these people as they hear about it. You know, one of the often quoted verses here is in Joshua chapter 2, uh, 40 years later, uh, Joshua will send spies into Jericho. And those spies will go in and they will find a prostitute named Rahab. And she will give them asylum. And Rahab says this. She, she says this to the, to the spies. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. 
God has already, as it were, saved Rahab. He's, he's already given her faith. He's already changed her heart. This is a prostitute living among the Canaanites. And God has graciously worked in her heart with the news of what the Lord did. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when, he came, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Has your heart ever melted? Maybe. You've felt that, what that feels like for your heart to just, it's it, all the strength in it. All the, all the courage, all, all the, the resolve just sort of melts away. Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, in this woman's mind and in this woman's heart, the Lord God of Israel had glorified himself and magnified himself as the only God. As she had come to trust in Israel's God. This is the terror that would come to all of those peoples. But why is God bringing all this terror? Well, the short answer is protection. He is protecting his people as he makes a path for them through the land. Just as he made a path for them through the sea, he is going to make a path for them through the land. And as he does that, he will protect his people. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. God loves them. He has redeemed them. And now he is leading them in his protecting graces. But I want you to see this. This is not mere protection. This is not mere protection. Look at the end of verse 13. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. In other words, God is bringing them to the place, to the place of worship. And that was the point all along. Remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let, he delivered the message from the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. What we see here is that God is not just protecting his people as they move along. God is protecting them to a destination. He is guiding them. He's leading them to a destination. God has purchased a people to become worshipers. And he is leading them to his sanctuary, to his abode, to his place of worship. It is the end result that God's people worship him and dwell with him forever. This is the meaning of life. It's not eternal happiness playing golf and eating cupcakes or however you view heaven. I, I don't know. Maybe for, for the children too especially. You're just thinking of heaven in this way. That's not heaven. Heaven is, the new heaven and the new earth is the place where God is. And we will enjoy him forever. We will know him and delight in him. He will once and for all be our full treasure. 
We will be with him and we will praise him. Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, I think is in view, but ultimately the new heavens and the new earth where God will abide with his people forever. We were saved to be with God and to be worshipers of God. That's what it's all about, to be with God and to be worshipers of God. And this is a good test on whether you're a Christian. If when you think of heaven, that's not where your head goes, the chances are you don't have the spirit-given desires for heaven. If, if your heart doesn't go, I'm going to be with God, yes. And I'm going to worship God perfectly, yes. If it's anything else besides that. And of course, you know, we want to see loved ones and all of that and live forever. All of that is built into our hearts. But, but if our minds don't go immediately and mostly to this, it'll tell us something about what we really think about salvation and what we really think about the Lord. Some of us just got a get out of hell card when we were teenagers, maybe, or kids. We told someone at six, seven years old, we wanted to ask Jesus into our hearts, and they, they dunked us in water, and, and then there you go. You're a Christian now. You're scared of hell. Don't want to go to hell. But never came to know God. Never came to love God. Never came to have God dwelling within, giving us a hope in and a desire for eternally dwelling with him in heaven and a new earth. We will be worshipers forever. This dwelling with his people in praise is summed up well in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. He will reign in the praises of his people. He will reign and we will reign with him forever. As we read these verses, it is as though we are looking in a mirror. Listen to the language. The people are purchased, ransomed, redeemed. The people are protected. They're guided. They're led. God puts terror in the hearts of the peoples. And they are planted. They are planted on God's holy mountain. They are planted with the Lord. Purchased, protected, and planted. We have much to give thanks to God for this morning. We are that people. We are purchased. We are protected through this life to the end. And God will plant us on his holy mountain. As we finish up this morning and we depart from the song, I want us to look at this little bit of narrative that comes after regarding Miriam. So that brings us to our third point as we close this morning, the comprehensive praise Verses 19 to 21. Look at verses 19 to 21. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her, after her, with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What are we to make of this little section? Just kind of tacked on here to the end. How does it relate to what's gone before? Well, 
verse 1, in verse 1, we read these words. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. But the text there in verse 1 literally reads, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang. So perhaps we are meant to take verse 1 as more exclusive. Maybe up to this point, the men of Israel have accompanied Moses in singing praises to the Lord. Moses and the sons of Israel. Moses and the men of Israel have together sang these praises to the Lord. They are leading in song to the Lord. But then we see that this praise that is happening among the sons of Israel, among the men, among the fathers and the husbands, it it breaks out as it were, among the women. And now we see, led by Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, the women begin to exult in the Lord as well. It is almost like a volcanic eruption. It just cannot be contained. This praise must expand and expand and expand. This is comprehensive praise as the Lord leads Miriam to grab hold of the women and lead them in praise to God. She is called Aaron's sister here because Aaron is the oldest. And Moses is showing that regard and that respect for his brother as he writes this. This is the one who watched over baby Moses when he was placed in a basket on the Nile. Remember Miriam, the older sister there, caring for Moses, watching to see what's going to happen to him. She, along with her brothers, will have a leading role in God's work among the people. She is a prophetess. And her ministry is to the women of Israel. And so it says here, she took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. She follows the lead of Moses In leading the women in song. By repeating the opening words of the song that had just been sung. But I want you to notice this before we finish up this morning. Miriam's praise is introduced with narrative. And it's repetitive narrative. Why why do we have these verses here repeating uh, what had happened in chapter 14? Well, just as... The praises of the beginning of chapter 15 are introduced by all of chapter 14. So too here we see Miriam's praises are preceded by this narrative. And what it reminds us as we go back to last week is that praise does not come out of a vacuum. As we talked about last time, it is a reaction. Praise is a reaction. It is a reaction to God's work. It is a reaction to his glorious deeds. And so let me say this to us as we leave. What's down in the reservoir of our hearts? If if there's no content down in there, Bible content, no content about what God did in history and what God has done in Christ, there's just no Bible content in the heart. You're not going to have anything to draw from as you praise God. Because our praises are a reaction to God's glorious deeds. So here's what we do. We fill our hearts with Scripture. We fill our minds with God's truth. And we pray that it would not fall on hard, dry ground. But that it would fall on hearts that soak it up 
and then give it back to God in praise. Such is the Christian life. Let's pray.